This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Obesity is a tremendous problem in the United States and places a large number of Americans at increased risk for a variety of chronic health conditions, including type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even cancer. Lifestyle changes, including diet and exercise, are sometimes effective in treating obesity, but often they're unsuccessful. For selected individuals, bariatric surgery has been shown to be effective in producing substantial weight loss. With us today to discuss bariatric surgery is Dr. James Madura, a general surgeon and director of the bariatric surgery program at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome, James. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk about uh, who is a candidate for bariatric surgery. Our recommendations or uh, guidelines for bariatric surgery, uh, believe it or not, are, are dated to 1991 National Institute of Health Consensus Conference uh, statement on the use of, of surgery for weight loss. Now, realize in 1991, not a single laparoscopic bariatric operation had been done. So we think these are quite dated and the long story is hopefully we'll have another NIH con- uh, conference sometime soon to review the actual criteria, but at this point we're still stuck with those recommendations, which are a patient who has a body mass index of 40 or greater, regardless of their medical profile, should be a candidate for bariatric consideration. And we drop that body mass index to 35 should they have obesity-related comorbidities like the ones you mentioned, diabetes especially. Mm-hmm. Are those, are those guidelines, or are they pretty strict? So are, are they, do you have to meet certain criteria for insurance to cover this, or do you have some leeway in making a decision one way or the other? Right. So those are the um, medical guidelines, which usually are used in adopting criteria through the insurance products. And, of course, as you well know, many times it's those insurance guidelines that determine whether or not a patient has coverage and what the criteria are for them to undergo surgery. Uh, for example, many insurance products will have some language that would state something to the effect of they must have undergone six months of medically supervised weight loss in addition to the body mass index and comorbidity guidelines. I was going to ask you about insurance, but since you brought it up, let's talk about that now. Are, are most individuals covered by insurance for this, or are there some uh, who exclude bariatric surgery? Yeah, it's a real wild west in terms of coverage. Uh, CMS or Medicare does cover uh, bariatric surgery uh, under those guidelines, and they've eliminated a lot of their programming requirements, too, based on information that's come out and has been taken to them. In terms of private insurance, um, many of the policies do have coverage, but they also have uh, some special situations where... Uh, they may not contract with every hospital to perform bariatric surgery on their patients. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are there some patients who actually meet the criteria, but you feel are poor candidates for bariatric surgery and you you turn them down? You know, Daryl, that's the real irony of what I do, is that the sicker people are and the heavier they are and the probably more risky the operations are, the more they need the operation Mm -hmm. for their weight loss and improvement in health. So there are very few patients. There, the, again, going back to the guidelines, unstable psychiatric diagnoses, 
and um, addiction to substance or substance abuse disorders are relative near absolute contraindications to surgery. Um, but, you know, we have operated on people with ventricular assist devices and undergoing liver transplants, and we sort of push the envelope to make sure the patients have opportunities to improve their obesity-related comorbidities, including making them candidates for transplants, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, I've had several patients who have undergone bariatric surgery, and it's, it's been an amazing uh, change in, in them. Uh, can you kind of summarize what the healthcare benefits can uh, you, they can realize by bariatric surgery? Yeah, I think the most important would be something like diabetes, where we see, depending on how long they've had diabetes, how much insulin they're on, as many as 70, 80, sometimes 90% of patients uh, will be insulin-free within months of surgery. Um, and that obviously has an impact on their long-term diabetes-associated health comorbidities as well, the cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. renal disease, and the likes. Um, there are other, um, as you've mentioned, the improvement in cancer uh, prognosis uh, or the uh, risk of cancer for breast, ovarian, and prostate cancers have all now been associated with um, bariatric surgery, successful long-term weight loss, and decreasing incidence of those cancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the host of the dyslipidemias, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, uh, and the list is pretty long. Yeah. Uh, when I summarize a patient's health problems, it's amazing how many of their health problems are directly related to their, uh, to their weight status. You know, and that's been debated for a long time. You know, people used to say uh, morbid obesity. Well, was it really the obesity or was it their sedentary lifestyle, their dietary habits? We now know, thanks to bariatric surgery, that those are independent associations of obesity contributing to those health conditions. And we know that when the obesity is treated effectively after bariatric surgery, those health conditions improve or go away. Mm -hmm. Well, how many different bariatric procedures exist Well, there is a couple handfuls of procedures that exist. I think uh, contemporarily there are two main operations that compete for probably about 95% of the operations that we perform, and that's a laparoscopic gastric bypass and a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. There is something called a lap band, which a lot of people have heard and seen advertised on TV that has really gone out of favor when we had finally had 10-year data that operation actually has more complications and revisions than a gastric bypass. So that's gone out of favor. And then there's a handful of uh, malabsorptive operations, something called a biliopancreatic diversion or a duodenal switch, these long-limb gastric bypasses that have a whole set of side effects related to the malabsorption that most people don't perform those with any uh, volume just because of the success of our two main operations and the increased complications of some of the malabsorptive procedures. And then it's kind of exciting. There's a handful of endoscopic treatments that are coming along. Most are still considered experimental, but there's an intragastric balloon, which is exactly what it sounds like. They take the endoscope, use it to place a balloon inside the stomach and fill it up with fluid. Unfortunately, that's only approved for six months. And once the balloon comes out, of course, patients can eat normally again and tend to gain their weight back. Mm -hmm. And then there's some endoscopic plication where they're talking about doing a sleeve with the endoscope, so they just tack the stomach to itself to decrease the volume, uh, as well as some gastric pacemaker and things like that that, again, are still pretty much considered experimental or recommended to be performed in clinical trials only. 
So some pretty creative solutions to the uh, overweight problem here. Yes. Are there instances where the procedure that you perform needs to be reversed? Um, I don't necessarily think reversed. Um, there are revisions and there are conversions of one operation to another. For example, some patients who have a sleeve gastrectomy either will not lose adequate weight or they have a higher rate of weight, weight regain uh, or they can develop significant reflux disease, gastroesophageal mm -hmm. reflux. And some of those patients will be converted to a gastric bypass, for example, to solve those issues. Um, the Technically, a gastric bypass is reversible, but I've only done two in my life uh, for people that had intractable uh, ulcer disease that just couldn't get healed up with the gastric bypass anatomy. Um, and, of course, a sleeve gastrectomy is not reversible because 70 to 80 percent of the stomach is removed at the time of the initial operation. Mm -hmm. I can think of a handful of patients that I have had who were undergoing an evaluation for potential bariatric surgery, and I was impressed with the extensive evaluation preoperatively that they had to go through. Can you kind of summarize what, uh, what's done with patients who are candidates for bariatric surgery? Well, I think your experience is because of your location at the Mayo Clinic. I don't, unfortunately, a lot of bariatric surgery is driven by the private practice uh, market and business models, and not everybody goes through the amount of evaluation and intervention that we think is important for them to be successful long-term. Yep, and I so have we noticed have, that, sorry, too. Right, yeah. So we have approximately three- to four-month program where patients uh, in Arizona come and spend one initial day with us where they will see about six providers, depending on how they enter the program. They'll see the surgeon, an endocrinologist or internal medicine doctor, a dietitian, uh, they'll start some of their therapy from a psychology standpoint uh, and start some of their education. And then they have a weekly class with us that goes on for six to eight weeks, again, depending on how they enter the program. And then they'll be ready to have surgery at that point. They have homework they have to do, they have reading material, they have dietary logs to really get them to understand their relationship with food or uh, ill relationship with food. Also to give them the tools necessary and understanding what they're going to have to do after surgery. And we make them start that before surgery, and we see some uh, successful weight loss. And most of the patients come back to us and say they learn so much about themselves, so much about diets, even though they've been in Weight Watchers, even though they've been in a number of other programs, that uh, the tools and the understanding that we are able to give them during that time period uh, is life-changing for them. So a patient's journey through bariatric surgery does not really end with the surgery. They've got some changes they need to make following this. Is that correct? Absolutely. They need to make changes before surgery, and the ones that don't, uh, we oftentimes will delay or cancel their uh, programming because if they're gaining weight while they're supposed to be practicing and learning and changing their diet and exercise habits, that's a red flag to us. So mm -hmm. they make changes before surgery, and as I always tell them, the surgery is the easy part. It's dealing with the consequences afterwards and the emotions of not having the same eating habits, uh, dietary choices after surgery that can be more, the most difficult part of it. Yeah, and I've been impressed with how we look really closely into the emotional aspects of this and uh, get our psychiatrists involved in some cases and make sure the patient is going to do well following the surgery. Absolutely, and we have a mandatory, our psychologists are now running the bariatric evaluation, 
Um, and that's partly because of those National Institute of Health criteria that suggest patients have to ha not have a unstable uh, psychiatric diagnosis and none of the substance abuse disorders. So that's how they sort of first come into the evaluation to make sure they don't have any issues. But they also are, uh, I think, instrumental in helping patients deal with their, their eating disorders. And I think, you know, once patients get to be that significantly overweight, I consider it an eating disorder, despite the metabolic challenges and everything else that we know about. Right. Well, in addition to weight loss, does bariatric surgery literally change the nutritional status? Or do you have to make some changes in your nutrition following this procedure? Yeah, I think that's one of the big myths of obesity is that people are overnourished if they're overweight. And, and oftentimes we see a lot of uh, micronutrient and actual nutrient vitamin deficiencies in, in obese patients. It's really a metabolic disorder as well as an overweight disorder. So there are certainly some uh, long-term concerns about vitamin and mineral deficiencies and protein deficiencies. Uh, for some of the uh, uh, elements that may be preferentially absorbed in the first part of the intestine tract after a gastric bypass, for example. But we see very similar deficiencies after a sleeve gastrectomy. That was one of the thoughts that uh, we thought maybe a sleeve would be less uh, likely to cause nutritional deficiencies, and yes, yet we see very similar long-term deficiencies. So the initial after surgery, the volume intake is so small that it's really a concentration on protein intake to maintain lean body mass while they're losing weight, and then obviously the dietary supplementation things. Eventually, patients can eat pretty normally, a uh, normal uh, variety of food and probably a cup and a half portion, which is sort of like a lean cuisine meal, as I tell patients. Mm -hmm. But most of us look at that lean cuisine meal and think that's the appetizer and <laughs> the rest of the meal is yet to come. So, yes, those are huge adjustments, and, and there is a lot of emphasis during their education and post-op follow-up on their dietary needs. Are patients given specific uh, nutritional supplements to take following surgery, or does it all occur by changing what they're eating? No. Our patients all need to take uh, a multivitamin with iron, and they take calcium and vitamin D and monthly B12 shots. Right. And that mm -hmm. is a lifelong recommendation. We do see them and monitor for other potential issues uh, from a nutritional standpoint and may uh, add some additional supplementation at the post-op time periods. Now, do you follow all these patients, or can they be managed by their primary care providers? We do follow or recommend following all of our patients, but we, as well, you know, have patients that travel from long distances. And we have, on many occasions, uh, worked with primary care providers to forward our recommendations for time of monitoring uh, and, and laboratory evaluations, for example, postoperatively, uh, what labs to monitor. And we clearly work closely with them. Should patients develop any issues, complications, side effects of surgery, uh, we can manage those, usually with primary care providers long distance mm -hmm. as well. Can you briefly summarize what we should be monitoring when we see these patients in follow-up? Sure. We should be monitoring their weight um, and their dietary habits, uh, what kind of volume they're having, any side effects from eating, um, and any uh, other complaints they may be having from a gastrointestinal uh, perspective. And then um, nutritionally, uh, we follow their blood count, make sure they don't develop any anemia. Um, and then um, a battery of calcium, uh, iron studies, 
usually a folate B12 level long term as well as uh, calcium and vitamin D. And is there a time period where you can stop the monitoring or is this a lifelong uh, evaluation? We recommend those basic studies on an annual basis. We'll see patients in our program that, that are local about six times between a surgical post-op visit, a couple dietitian visits, we'll follow up with a psychologist uh, and program uh, director or coordinator so that we can arrange those laboratory studies at three different time points in that first year. And then we recommend annual evaluation and, of course, more frequently should they develop any deficiencies. Mm-hmm. What are the potential complications that can happen as a result of bariatric surgery? The, there, we sort of break those down into two categories. One are the surgical complications. Those usually happen immediately within the first day or two after surgery, and those would be bleeding, leaks, blood clots, EVTs, PEs, um, as well as any other routine com- uh, complication from a general anesthetic. And certainly the obese population is slightly higher risk than that. Amazing statistic, though, is our mortality rates, perioperative death rates within 30 days of surgery are now actually lower than an appendectomy or a cholecystectomy for a laparoscopic gastric bypass. Hmm. So those perioperative complications, I think, have really been addressed by a, a big experience that we now have in a large volume setting for most programs, uh, as well as uh, the Center of Excellence programming, which has um, forced us uh, in a good way to develop pathways, uh, the prophylaxis and, uh, you know, surgical pathways to get the patients through there safely without uh, major complications. Mm-hmm. And then we worry long-term. We've talked a little bit about nutritional deficiencies. Patients can have ulcers um, that need to be addressed either medically or surgically. And, again, those are both after, you know, to two major operations are very similar with those issues. Um, and then... Um, Side effects from the operation, the malabsorptive, nutritional stuff, again, we talked about. Uh, and there can be some uh, scar tissue, um, bowel obstructions, internal hernias, those types of things that carry about a 5% lifetime risk of reoperation after a gastric bypass for uh, some of those issues. Mm-hmm. Do you see patients very often who have bariatric surgery but experience no weight loss? Um, I don't think I've ever seen anyone who has had no weight loss. Uh, From a surgical perspective, we talk about 50% excess weight loss as a surgical success. And for a gastric bypass, about 15% of patients either don't lose or don't maintain 50% excess weight loss. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a sleeve, we don't really know what that number is. Uh, It's higher. Uh, We don't have long-term data like we do for the gastric bypasses, but Preliminary, about five-year data suggests that number may be as high as 30 or 40 percent don't lose or maintain that 50 percent uh, excess weight loss after a sleeve gastrectomy. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's close by asking you to summarize uh, several key points for our listeners regarding bariatric surgery. So I think the main uh, point that I like to get across is that bariatric surgery is safe. Um, As we talked about the mortality and complication rates, our patients, most of them will go home the day after their operation and not be readmitted. We have lower than 4% readmission rate. So first and foremost, contemporary bariatric surgery is safe, um, and it results in sustained lifelong improvement, not only in their weight, but in the obesity-related comorbidities. 
and that a lot more people should be considered for bariatric surgery. When we look at national statistics, we're probably only operating on 1% to 1.5% of the patients who actually meet NIH criteria for consideration of bariatric surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the impressive results that we get uh, in terms of treating diabetes and other obesity-related comorbidities, I think that we should consider a much greater uh, population of patients um, should be considering surgery. Well, we've been discussing bariatric surgery with Dr. James Madura, a general surgeon and director of the Bariatric Surgery Program at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. James, thank you so much for sharing your uh, knowledge with us today. Thank you very much, Darrell. It's been a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.